Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Well, Polly and I, uh, we don't... We don't pay for cable anymore, and so when we go on vacation, as we did um, a couple weeks ago to Florida, we uh, take the opportunity to catch up on some of our old favorite TV shows, and uh, one of them that's now become a family favorite, uh, with, especially with my daughter Ellery, is Man vs. Wild with Bear Grylls, and uh, this past vacation, we discovered his spinoff show, Running Wild, uh, in which Bear takes famous celebrities out in the wild with him, and one of my favorite moments from... Uh, the show uh, we watched was um, Zach Efron commando crawling uh, across a, a 40 or 50 foot span of rope uh, suspended over a chasm some 150 feet uh, below. And so uh, Bear went a- across first, and before he did, he had tied a safety rope between the two of them. And so when Bear got across, he he shouted back, you know, reminded Zach of two very important things. Uh, number one, if anything goes wrong, just remember, you're attached to me. And secondly, whatever you do, don't look down. Okay, good, you've crossed a rope before. Don't look down. Just keep looking ahead. As we uh, resume our study of the book of Exodus this morning, Moses must feel like he is stuck on a tightrope, 150 Feet in the air between a proverbial rock and a hard place as God has called Moses to confront Pharaoh and demand that Pharaoh let the Israelites go free from their bondage in Egypt to worship the Lord. But last week in chapter 5, when Moses delivered that message, Pharaoh's response was essentially to laugh in his face and to double the Israelites' workload. So now on top of Pharaoh's rejection, Moses is being blamed and rejected by his own people as well. Opposed by Pharaoh on the one side, opposed by the Israelites on the other. Where does Moses turn? To his credit, chapter 5 ended with Moses turning to the Lord. Verse 22, and crying out, essentially, God, why? Why? Why are you letting Pharaoh oppress us? Why did you send me in the first place? Why haven't you rescued your people already, God? And so we concluded last week with God's reply to Moses as chapter 6 opens. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do. Moses, when you've come to the end of yourself, you're ready to accept me as the great deliverer. And this morning, God is going to continue his response to Moses by offering him three reminders and seven promises. Three reminders, seven promises. Spoiler alert, they all essentially boil down to Bear's advice to Zac Ephron. God is going to remind Moses, Moses, you're attached to me. And secondly, God is going to promise him that safety lies just ahead on the other side. So Moses, keep looking to me. Keep looking ahead. Friends, that's what God wants to remind some of us this morning 
as well. Remember, the Bible isn't just history. It's not just his story, Moses's, Israel's. It's our story as well. In fact, it may be your present reality for some of you this morning. As your pastor, I know it is. I can look around the room and see your faces. I know what some of you are facing this morning. Maybe you feel like Moses, like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, dangling 150 feet in the air. And given the circumstances swirling all around you, it feels impossible for you to follow Bear's advice. Don't look down. The truth is, maybe you've been spending a lot of your time lately doing just that, looking down. You're looking down at your present predicament. You're looking down at your current concerns. And so it's no wonder that you're anxious. It's no wonder that you're scared, you're fearful. It's no wonder you're paralyzed. Perhaps this morning you need to hear God's reminders Just look up. Lift your eyes up to me. Look ahead to the hope that lies ahead of you on the other side and trust in my promises. So I invite you to stand to hear God's reminders and promises with me from Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard now the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for its beautiful reminders to us and its blessed promises to us. Father, we thank you most of all this morning for your son Jesus, in whom all your promises find their yes and amen and fulfillment. Would you make much of Jesus, help us to see him in your word and his salvation this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to 
make explicit for you an interpretive connection thus far in our study through Exodus is mostly remained implicit, and I hinted at it in our prayer just there. Most Sundays so far in Exodus, I have ended the sermon, last two or three minutes maybe, by attempting to show you how this passage we've been studying points us to Jesus. In John 5, 39, Jesus declared the Old Testament scriptures bear witness to him. Luke 24, 27, we hear Jesus uh, interpreting from Moses and all the prophets, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself for his disciples. And so according to Jesus, all the Old Testament ultimately is intended to point us to him. So for a, for a pastor not to make the, the Christ connection on a Sunday is to miss the point. But that connection is more clear, it's more obvious in some texts than others. And in this text, for this morning, I think it ought to hit us like a two-by-four because these short eight verses in chapter 6, are going to function almost like an outline for the entire book of Exodus. God's promise in verse 6 to deliver Israel is essentially, that's the the narrative plot line of the first 18 chapters of Exodus. Then his promise in verse 7 to take Israel as his people, that summarizes chapters 19 through 24, and God's reestablishment of his covenant with them. And then finally God's promise to be their God in verse 7 previews chapters 26 through 40, the ending of Exodus where God instructs Israel in their worship of him as their God. It's an outline for the book. And so, This short passage then invites us, I think, to zoom out this morning and consider the overarching story of Exodus as a whole. And when we do that, we need to realize that this story is an allegory. Okay, if you've forgotten your high school English, allegory is a symbolical narrative. The Exodus story points us beyond itself to another even more central, important story, namely the gospel story. Now, it's not just allegorical. Exodus is, of course, also historical. It's important in its own right. So it's more than allegory, but it's not less than allegory. Exodus, again, it's, it's intended first and foremost, primarily, most importantly, to point us ahead to the greater story of the greater deliverance. God is going to work through an even greater Savior, his son, Jesus. And so here's the, the Exodus in pictorial form for you visual learners, right? Uh, God is God in both stories. God is unchanging, New Testament, Old Testament. But the Israelites, God's Old Testament people, who were enslaved in bondage, now are representing, they're, they're a prefiguring, they're a typology of the church, God's New Testament, New Covenant people to come, the ones suffering on the steps under the yoke of slavery. And that slavery for us is no longer under the, in bondage to Egypt, physical oppression. It's in bondage. We're in, we've been in bondage to sin, spiritual slavery. Been oppressed not by just Pharaoh. Pharaoh is, a, again, a typology of Satan, of the, the very personification of evil. And more importantly, most importantly of all, Moses is a typology. He's a prefiguring of the better Moses, as Hebrews 3 calls him, Jesus, our great deliverer, our Savior. And so we're not going to wait this morning until the very end to tie it all back to Jesus. I think all three of these reminders that God is going to offer Moses, and especially the seven promises God makes to him, they are all pointing us to Jesus. So with that introduction, uh, reminder number one, that God offers Moses right off the bat, Here in verse 2, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. So 
Anytime you see that word LORD in all caps in your Bible like that, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, I'd love to give you a Bible this morning at the info bar, our gift to you uh, for, for being with us. But anytime you see the LORD in all caps, that is code for a translation of God's personal revealed name in the Hebrew, Yahweh. And I'm calling it a reminder because this is not new information for Moses. You may recall that pivotal conversation that he had with God two weeks ago in chapter 3 in the burning bush encounter when God commissioned Moses and Moses asked him, hey, if I do what you're telling me, I go back to Egypt and talk to the Israelites and they ask me, how do we know God sent you? Who, Who sent you? What should I say? What's your name, God? And remember, God answered him in chapter 3, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. And God also said to Moses, say this, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. It's God's name. My name is Will. Our name is West Hills. God's name is Yahweh. Now, your Bible doesn't say Yahweh because the Jews who wrote and copied and eventually translated the Old Testament for us, they believed that God's name was so holy, God's name was literally ineffable. It was not to even be spoken out of respect for its sacredness. As a matter of fact, we had a young man join us just last week uh, for, the, for the very first time uh, who, who came with uh, some of his friends, some of our WashU students, and uh, he, he's in the... Orthodox, I think, Jewish club um, on campus at, at Wash U, and uh, he'd never stepped foot in a church before, and I'm not sure if he ever will again. I may have already run him off because he was so struck, he was so you know, just dumbfounded and taken aback by the fact that last week, just like this week, I would dare to have the audacity to utter the name of God out loud, Yahweh. And my hope and prayer following up with his friends who brought him, is that hearing me, us, call God by his personal revealed name in church without getting struck by lightning might stick with that young man, might even bother him until eventually one day, I hope, I pray, he realizes, wait a minute, these people, these Christians, they've got, they've got some kind of relationship, like a personal relationship with the God of the Bible, the almighty God of the universe, that until now I never even knew was possible. They were praying to him last week as father. Who does that? I'll tell you who does that. God's children do that. Yahweh's adopted sons and daughters, we dare to call him our father. We dare to use God's personal name because God has invited us into a personal relationship with him. Listen, my kids don't call me pastor. I I don't know, but Prince Harry and Prince William, I'm guessing they don't address King Charles as king. I'm guessing they call him dad. Friends, because of what Jesus has done for us to reconcile us to our heavenly father, Galatians 4 now declares that we have received adoption as sons. And because you are sons, you are no longer a slave. Aha, that sound familiar? No longer a slave, but now you're sons. 
God has sent a spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, Daddy. You can call him Daddy. We're coming back to that passage. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get back to God's reminder here. I am Yahweh. What is God trying to convey to Moses with his name Yahweh? Verse 3 helps clear it up. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, my personal name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, pause for a minute because things are going to get a little murkier before they get clearer. There's a problem in verse 3, namely that God's personal name, Yahweh, does in fact appear over a hundred times throughout the book of Genesis before we ever get to Exodus 3 in the burning bush encounter. So, and some of those times, it's even on the lips of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They address God as Yahweh. And so what are we to make of this? Is God mistaken, misremembering, lying when he tells Moses, I didn't make myself known to them as Yahweh? What does it mean to know Here's how Philip Ryken explains it. He says, some scholars say this is a kind of contradiction we should expect in a book written by multiple fallible human authors. This view is unacceptable to anyone who receives the Bible as God's inerrant word. Another suggestion is that when the name Lord, Yahweh, appears in Genesis, it is an anachronism. As Moses wrote the book of Genesis later, he simply used God's later revealed name to tell an earlier story. You know, like if we wrote a biography of Muhammad Ali, even though he was born Cassius Clay, you know, we say Ali was, you know, born to parents, da, da, da. He's just using it that way. After all, he was still writing about the same God. But probably, Riken explains, the best explanation of all, however, is that the patriarchs did not fully understand the meaning of God's proper name. The meaning. I remember from our study of Genesis a couple years ago, from our study, our, our Advent series back in December together. His name shall be called. Just uh, names meant something in the Bible. Names carried a, a meaning, a weight, a significance. It wasn't just, you know, I, I like the way it sounds. or it, They meant something about the person's character. Genesis 3.20, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Eve means literally living. Uh, Genesis 17.5, God said to him, Your name shall be called Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. That's what... Abraham means multitude of nations. Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Yeshua means he saves. So even, even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they knew God's name Yahweh, they didn't know its meaning. They didn't understand what I am who I am. What does that mean? Commentator Christopher Wright explains, the tense of the repeated Hebrew verb here, eyeh, asher, eyeh, it carries both a present and future sense. It would be equally possible then to translate, I am now what I will be forever. That's the better translation, maybe. There is a note of dependability or faithfulness in the phrase, Yahweh is and always will be the God you can know and trust now and into the future. The name Yahweh then is associated with the covenant that God makes to his people. Yahweh is the God of covenant promise and of covenant faithfulness, for that is who he is and who he will be forever. Okay, That is massively important for us to understand this morning, what God's name Yahweh means. That's what he's trying to get through to Moses. He's effectively saying, Moses, I revealed myself to your ancestors as El Shaddai, as the mighty God who makes covenant promises, but now I'm revealing myself to you as Yahweh, the faithful God who comes through, who keeps those covenant promises. See, 
God can make big, audacious promises to Abram to give him a people, a place, a pledge of blessing, this, to make this old, impotent man into a nation as numerous as the stars, and then to give that nation a land, their own land, flowing with milk and honey, and then to use that nation to bless every other nation on earth. Massive promises. Unbelievable, unimaginable to Abram. God can make them because he's El Shaddai. He is almighty God, the all-sufficient, powerful one. That's who he is in verses 3 and 4 here. Covenant-making God. I established my covenant with your fathers, in verse 4 he says. But a promise, we know, is only as good as one's ability to what? To keep it, right? It's like that great Seinfeld episode where Jerry's trying to pick up the rental car that he made the reservation for at the airport. They tell him, oh, we're all out of cars. He says, I don't understand. I have a reservation. She says, yes, yes, I understand. He says, I don't think you do understand. Reserva- you must know how to take a reservation, but apparently you don't know how to hold the reservation. And really, that's the most important part of the reservation. Anyone can just take reservations, right? It's the same way with promises. Anyone can just, you know, make promises to you. I can make you promises all day long. The most important part of the promise is what? The keeping of the promise, and that is what Yahweh means. I am now who I will be forever. I'm dependable. I'm faithful. Moses, if I promise it to you, you can take it to the bank. It's as good as done. That's verse 5. When, when God says, I have remembered my covenant, that verb, remember, Hebrew, zakar, it doesn't mean to, you know, temporarily, oh, I, I forgot for 400 years while you were in slavery, and then later recall it back to mind. It, it really means to keep, to honor. God is saying, I made my people a promise. Now the time, the fullness of time has come to make good on, to keep that promise. Now, Got to move on, because we're still only on point number one of ten. But let's don't miss this. There is a very real sense in which we could say, not just of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, but of all the Old Testament saints, that by his name, Yahweh, God did not make himself known, not fully in the Old Testament, because, again, all the promises of God, 2 Corinthians 1 tells us, find their fulfillment they're yes, they're amen. Ultimately, where? In Jesus. So when God promised, every promise of the Old Testament is intended to point us ahead. When God promised Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars, he didn't just have the Israelites in mind. No, Galatians 3 tells us in Christ Jesus, we are all now sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek now, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's what? Offspring, heirs according to the promise. So God's promise to Abraham anticipated our adoption as well as his beloved children. When God promised Abraham the land, his second promise, he didn't just have Canaan in mind. This, you know, dusty patch of, of the Middle East, a couple miles strip long. No, Hebrews 11 says Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. They were seeking, the patriarchs, a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, Canaan, Hebrews says, they would have had opportunity to return. They would have just gone back. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. 
And God has prepared for them a city, and he's prepared it for us too. God's promise of, uh, of the land anticipated a better land, heaven. Coming back to that. And when God promised to bless every nation through Abraham, his third promise, he certainly didn't mean that the Israelites were going to have you know, wonderful, honky-dory, symbiotic relationships with all of their Old Testament neighbors, all the, the tribes and nations living around them. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that's not it. No, the Apostle Peter explains that promise to his fellow Jews in Acts chapter 3. He says, you are the sons of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And here he explains, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you, Jews, first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, which has now become the cornerstone. And there is salvation and no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friends, God's promise of blessing to Abram anticipated his greatest blessing, his greatest gift of all, salvation through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, his son. And when you and I hear today God say, I am Yahweh, in Exodus 6, the God of covenant faithfulness, we cannot hear him say that without being reminded of all God's covenant promises, finding their ultimate and utmost fulfillment in his son, Jesus, the better Moses who frees us from our enslavement to sin and its consequence, hell, death. As Zechariah the priest announced on the eve of Jesus' birth, I love this. This is the covenant coming full circle Zechariah says, Blessed be Yahweh, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember, Zakar, honor, keep his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we might be delivered to give salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Friends, Jesus Christ is God's proof that he is Yahweh, our covenant-keeping God. You got all that? Reminder point number one? Good. Because here's reminder number two. I am the Lord, Yahweh. God repeats it verbatim again in verse six. In verse two, God reminded Moses... Hey, Moses, you need to know I'm Yahweh. Now in verse 6, God calls Moses to go and remind the rest of the Israelites. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. You want to guess his third reminder? Verse 8, I will give the land that I swore to your fathers to you for a possession. Why? Because I'm Yahweh, and I promised it. And when I make a promise, I keep it. And don't forget here, the you, when he says, I'll give the land to you as a possession, those who receive God's gift of the promised land are not the same Israelites from, uh, as verse 6, who Moses is sent to remind of Yahweh. Remember, that entire generation that Moses led out of Egypt, they're going to die out in the wilderness in the chapters to come. So what's the point? The point is that Moses needed to be reminded that God is a covenant-keeping God. God's people in Moses' day needed to be reminded that he is a covenant-keeping God. And God's people for all of time, for all generations to come, God's people will need to be reminded of who God is. That's the point. 
Oh, and also, if something is repeated twice in the Old Testament, it's important. If it's repeated three times, like God is holy, holy, holy. It's superlatively important. It is most important. He is the holiest of holies. Here, he is Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. He is the most faithful covenant-keeping God there is. And actually, God is going to repeat this statement, I am Yahweh, more than a dozen times all throughout total the, the book of Exodus, including, in case you missed it, a bonus fourth time sandwiched in verse 7 there, then you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. Is it starting to sink in yet? You say, oh my gosh, yes, pastor, please move on. I've got lunch plans. I get it. 30 minutes in, you've repeated the same bullet point three times for 30 minutes. Can we move on? I get it, but do you really? Do you really get it? When you get that phone call tomorrow with your biopsy results and it's cancer, will you remember then that he is the covenant-keeping God? When you get laid off work this week, will you start to wonder whether Yahweh is truly the covenant-keeping God that he claims to be. When your boyfriend breaks up with you this week, when your wife cheats on you, when your parent dies, when your child dies, will you still remember that Yahweh is a covenant-keeping God, that he has not only the power as El Shaddai to make you that wonderful promise from Romans 8.28, that he is working all things together for your good. It's a great promise. Anyone could just make promises. But that he is faithful as Yahweh to make good on that promise to you, that he will work it together for your good. Will you remember? Will you trust? God is going to give us seven reasons to remember, seven reasons to trust in his covenant-keeping faithfulness to us this morning. God gave these as promises to Moses. These are seven future tense I wills of God's promised coming salvation for Moses. But what Moses received as faith, you and I get to experience as sight this morning because we already know how the story ends. There's no surprise. We know how both stories end, actually. We know that God came through on all seven of these promises, not just once, not just for Moses, 3,500 years ago in Egypt, but a second and even more important, crucial time 2,000 years ago on a cross outside Jerusalem. Because the Exodus story points us ahead to the gospel story. And so God's seven promises of salvation here, they apply not just to Israel's deliverance from physical bondage in Egypt, but they apply equally to our deliverance from spiritual bondage to sin as well. It's an allegory. And so we're going to move quickly through these to cover all seven promises. God's twofold, double fulfillment of these promises to his Old Testament people and now his New Testament people. Promise number one, I will bring you out for Israel, it was out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God will bring them out dramatically from their physical bondage just a few chapters, weeks from now, when they cross the Red Sea. But for us, friends, God has now brought us out of spiritual darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2. We have passed out of spiritual death into eternal life, 1 John 3 says. It means 
unlike Israel, we weren't just suffering under the burden of our sin, friends. We were dead. Ephesians 2, 1 says, you were dead in your sins. Totally hopeless until Jesus came and brought us out like he did Lazarus. Dead, rotting, stinking in the tomb until Jesus said to him, Lazarus, come out. I am bringing you out. Will, come out. Karen, come out. Leanne, come out. Greg, come out. And God caused our dead hearts to beat. And Jesus brings us out of spiritual death. Promise number two, I will deliver you. For Israel, that was deliverance from slavery to the Egyptians, of course. But we have now been delivered from slavery to sin. Romans 6, you who were once slaves to sin have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, leading to eternal life. See, it's one thing to be brought out of sin. It's another thing to be truly delivered from it, to be set free. And I think the picture that we're going to get in a few weeks of Israel crossing the Red Sea is a telling and a, and a, a powerful one because Egypt's not going to go down without a fight. They're not just going to let Israel walk out casually. And you and I both know neither does your sin, does it? I mean, this just sort of being brought out from sin, it's, it's not as simple, as easy as that. Sin will try and chase you down. But listen, God didn't just bring Israel out by helping them outrun the Egyptians so they could spend the rest of their lives running in fear. No, God brought the walls of the sea back down on Egypt. There's a giant body of water now separating Israel from Egypt. Water, baptism, you make connections. They have been truly, decisively delivered, set free. 1 John 3, 5 says Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. Jesus didn't just bring us out of darkness. He brought the darkness out of us. I told you last week, uh, God needs to not only get his people out of Egypt, he needs to get Egypt out of his people. And that's going to pr prove a lot more difficult to do. They're going to grumble, complain, look back, look back. But he's already promised, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to get all the Egypt out of you, all the sin out of you. And Jesus has done that for us. Take away our sins because 1 Peter 2.24 says Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin. Revelation 1.5, Jesus has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus paid it all. It is finished. Not just the penalty for our sin, Jesus defeated sin's power as well. Sin will no longer have dominion, mastery over you, Romans 6 says. Brothers and sisters, we've got a new master now. You've got a new Lord, a new boss calling the shots. God delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus. And Jesus is a good master. He is a good Lord and Savior. He's delivered us from darkness into Christ's kingdom, in whom, Colossians 1 says, we now have redemption. And that's promise number three. I will redeem you. 
To redeem means to buy back. In antiquity, it was a word used to describe the release of a slave by the payment of a ransom. You don't just get to go free for free. (laughs) Freedom isn't free. Now, this is where the allegory, the metaphor starts to break down, though, because Egypt had enslaved Israel illegally. They had no rightful claim of lordship over God's people, Israel. So when God sets them free in the Old Testament, who's going to pay the price for Israel's redemption? Verse 6, God makes Egypt pay. Verse 6, I will redeem you with great acts of judgment. The plagues that we're going to kick off next week. Egypt's foot in the bill for Israel's redemption 3,500 years ago. But friends, you and I... Here's the problem. You and I deserved the death that was coming for us. You and I voluntarily submitted ourselves to the yoke of sin. We chose sin and its bondage. And yet, while we were yet sinners, rebelling against God, rejecting his rightful claim of lordship over our lives, Romans 5, 8 says, yet he died for us. We were ransomed, 1 Peter 1.18 says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Listen, no amount of money could buy our sin debt that we owed a holy, perfect God. No, no amount of spiritual capital that you think you have, no amount of good works could ever buy you out of slavery to sin. No, we were ransomed not with perishable things, but rather with the precious blood of Christ. It took nothing less than the highest cost of all, God's own perfect, only begotten son, Jesus, to pay your, my way out of hell. And praise God, that's exactly the price that God was willing to pay. Ephesians 1, 7, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Promise number four, he didn't just take us out. He says, I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to take you. I mean, God could have, God would have been uh, merciful and justified and glorious to have simply, while we were straying sheep, surrounded by wolves on all sides, to just, you know, defeat the wolves and, you know, put us out to pasture and say, okay, good luck. God would have, that would have been more than we deserved. Yet that's not what God does. He adopts us into his own fold. Promise number four, I will take you. I will take you to be my people. I'll be your good shepherd. God promises Israel in verse seven. God takes us as well. First Peter 2, 9. His New Testament people, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Remember, Again, we're not just freed for anarchy. Praise God. We're not just freed to have no ruler and do whatever we want. We're not freed for self-rule. No, we have been freed to follow. That's our, our, our series subtitle, Exodus. Free to follow him, to be ruled by Christ. And you want to be ruled by him. He is a good shepherd, a faithful shepherd, a loving shepherd. He will lead you to places you could never get on your own, including, most of all, heaven. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's where we're going. Uh, Philip Ryken explains, the Hebrew word take here really means to adopt. I will adopt you to be my people. That's how God has taken us. He has adopted us 
into his perfect heavenly family. Jesus paid the price of our adoption. My wife and I, Polly, we adopted our son Elijah uh, almost four years ago, uh, three years ago now. Adoption is expensive. Listen, our adoption cost God the highest price tag of all, his, the blood of his own son. Galatians 4, 5, God sent forth his son to redeem us, to buy us back so that we might receive adoption as sons. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Praise God. But it gets even better. Promise number five, I will be your God. If you're going to be, if I'm going to take you to be my children, then that means I will be your, your father. I will be your God. God is previewing here for Moses his adoption ceremony that's going to occur at the foot of Mount Sinai in chapter 19 in the weeks to come. When Polly and I adopted Elijah, we had to stand before a judge and we had to promise to raise him just like we would our own biological child. I took an oath to be his father. I will be to you your father. Friends, in his word, God tells us that he has made that same promise to us now as his adopted beloved children, that we now have all the rights and privileges that should belong to God's biological, his only begotten son. All the privileges should belong to Jesus alone on the cross. Jesus was trading his right status with God, his standing with God, his righteousness for our unrighteousness so that we might share now in his inheritance. Galatians 4, 7, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. And what is our inheritance? Promise number six, I will bring you into. Now, when God promised it to Israel, it was into a land flowing with milk and honey, into Canaan. But listen, God, Jesus has promised us a land so much better, a home so much better, with no more death, no more tears, no more sickness, no more sadness. He says, I will bring you into paradise. And what makes it paradise? Jesus does. He says, because you'll finally be with me. I'm here. John 14, 3, I go to prepare a place for you, but I will come again, and I will take you, bring you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Friends, that's where you want to be. Where Jesus is, that's where you want to be. But it gets even better than that, because God's final promise to us in this seventh promise to Israel that prefigures all of his promises of salvation to us is he says, I will give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. God not only promises to bring Israel into Canaan, I mean, that's great, but listen, Abraham had been brought into Canaan. Remember, he lived there in tents as a sojourner. Isaac had lived in Canaan, but only as a pilgrim. No, now God promises, I'm going to give it to you. You're going to own it. Do you realize that we're not just going to be visitors in heaven? That when we get there, we're not, we're not just passing through. We're not just tenants in heaven. No, it's part of our inheritance. God says, everything that belonged to Jesus, you now get is your inheritance. His rightful claim to heaven, it's yours. It's, it's all, I give it to you freely. It's going to be our home. Don't you love extreme home makeover? 
is one of our other shows we you know, sometimes catch up on. They take some poor altruistic family who run you know, an orphanage saving kids off the street, and they've adopted like 37 of them in this 1,500-square-foot home. And, and so they, you know, oh, we're going to you know, treat you to Disney World, so go for a week so we can you know, tear all that down and just build you a home. Ten times bigger and more beautiful and wonderful and awesome in its place. The best part of the, of the show, though, what's the best part? It's the end. It's where they hand them the keys. They don't just give them a tour. I mean, that's great. I can, I can check out this awesome home. Cool. But now it's yours. It's not just any home. It's your home. And it's all paid for. You don't owe a penny. Friends, that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. He's given us heaven. He's given us eternal life. He's paid it all. You don't owe a penny. 1 Peter 1.4 says, According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again into a living Hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven waiting for you. That's how Jesus welcomed Warren home on Friday morning. Jesus gave him the tour of heaven. Here, here are the pearly gates you've heard so much about. Oh, those streets of gold. Jesus walked them all around. I imagine Warren's jaw was just on the ground, you know, in his you know, spiritual glorified body. He doesn't need his cane anymore. And Warren gets the tour, and then Jesus says, oh, and by the way, it's yours. Here are the keys. This is your home. I'm not just leasing it. It's, it's yours. You belong here. That's, a, that's amazing. Because God's promise, his fulfilled promise, his work of salvation on our behalf is amazing. But here's the thing. Our reading didn't conclude there, did it? We get this twist ending in verse 9. Moses spoke thusly to the people of Israel. Moses obeyed God's calling. Okay, I'll go talk to Israel. He delivered God's message to his people. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Maybe that's how some of you feel this morning. Some of you are hearing all this, you're thinking, well, pastor, that sounds really great. Frankly, it sounds a little too good to be true. Pastor, you, you, God couldn't possibly forgive me. You don't know the things I've done. And God couldn't possibly set me free. You don't know the kind of harsh slavery that I am currently in bondage to. You don't know the kind of addiction that I suffer from. You don't know the kind of crippling debt that I'm suffering under. You don't know the kind of broken marriage I'm stuck in. Everyone knows, Pastor, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And here you're coming along trying to tell me it's not just lunch. I get it all. I get heaven. I get eternal life. I get salvation. All my past just wiped out, washed as white as snow, forgotten, removed as far as the east is from the west, all my sins. You're a free lunch? I don't think so. Too good to be true. And I don't know a penny. Jesus paid it all. Don't you love how this passage ends in verse 9 with Israel's rejection of God's promised salvation? Because to me, that is such hope and comfort for those of us like me who still struggle and doubt God's promises all the time. Did God back out on his promise and his plan to save them just because Israel doubts him? Does God say, well, I was going to do it for you, but now that you don't believe I can do it, I guess so. I'll find another people to adopt instead. Was his plan contingent on Israel's faith, faithfulness to him? No. God's covenant 
is dependent on his faithfulness to us. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself, his own name, Yahweh. God's not going to go back on his own name, Yahweh, covenant keeper. So friends, this week, when troubles inevitably come, and you're tempted to, to ignore Bear's advice and look down, huh, freak out. If anything goes wrong, just remember who you're attached to. And look ahead. Whatever you do, look ahead. Just keep looking ahead to his promised salvation on the other side. He's already made good on He's already fulfilled it in the most eternal, infinite, important way possible in Christ. He will come through again.